because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Well, I said we wouldn't have any new shows for a while, but now we have an occasion for a new show. This past Monday, October 21st, I debated Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at the University of Colorado at Boulder. It was a really interesting event. Overall, probably my favorite debate that I've done. And one thing that I did in preparation for the event was I put together a webpage that's uh, fossilfueldebate.com so that people could look up different facts that I mentioned and could see that they were actually valid facts, not some sort of partisan claim. And also I decided, well, we should, we might as well do a follow-up where we discuss some of what happened during the debate, including different claims to fact, because I was quite sure that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would say things that I did not regard as factual, but there would be no full way to deal with it at the time. So today I am going to talk about that stuff, joined by my colleagues who helped prepare for the debate and also have plenty of thought, uh, thoughts themselves. Uh, Don Watkins uh, in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hey, guys. Okay. So I know you guys had some, you know, there, there's a lot that we could talk about, but let's see. I'll give you my overview and then I'm curious what your guys' favorite parts were, and then we'll spend most of the time discussing what, what points we think need to be addressed, uh, either more than I did or I didn't address them uh, at all. So we'll talk about that. And then specifically, we, we really want to cover different kinds of claims to fact that were made during the debate and discuss the actual evidence on those, and Stefan will be the main person helping with that. So the, the response I've gotten so far with the debate has been really positive. And now the response that I've disagreed with has been when people said, oh, you know, it was, it was a weak opponent. And I take that as a compliment because I don't actually think he was a weak opponent. And as someone who was there pointed out on Facebook, he started out pretty strong. Now, he didn't start out with like a completely organized, airtight thing, but he did, he did start out by making what seemed like a pretty overwhelming case against what he expected to be my position. And he he definitely had a lot of confidence during it. And he said something to the effect of, I think several times, like, Alex is in a really difficult position. Like, I'm not sure what he's going to be able to say about all this stuff that I'm doing. And in advance, I, I was thinking about what is he going to do? And there were there were four words that struck me as capturing what he's most likely to do, in part because I know his position and I know, but I know the mainstream narrative very well on this issue. So I expected that he was going to do four things, or at least things captured by four words. So the words are fear, enthusiasm, authority, and overwhelm. So fear is make people afraid of what they call the existential threat of climate change or climate emergency or climate crisis. So make people very afraid, okay, if we don't do something, namely something I'm advocating, then we're in big, big trouble. The second is enthusiasm, is, saying, is appearing very enthusiastic about the unique, exciting prospects of renewable energy from solar and wind. I definitely expected that, and we definitely got that one a lot. The third is authority, so that he would cite particularly scientific authorities, but also to some extent economic authorities, to make clear to the audience, or at least to make appear to the audience, as if what he was saying is completely just undeniable and only some crazy denier-type person would deny what he's saying. And then the final thing was overwhelm, because the idea, and it involves all of these, but it's the tactic of just using an overwhelming number of claims often in a number of all these specific instances of the way in which the world is getting worse, and then all these specific instances uh, of renewables actually actually being superior, and then it just seems like, wow, okay, there's this one nightmare we should be afraid of, and there's this one dream we should be enthusiastic about, and everybody agrees, and there's just so much data. Uh, of course they agree. So 
what the commenter on Facebook, I think his name is Jack Hamlin, pointed out, and he was there, and I, I met him in person. I think he's part of the, I think he's with, the, there's a, a cool group in Colorado called Energy Strong, and I think he was one of the main guys in that, but I don't have his quote in front of me, but he said, you know, there were a lot of people nodding, and I could just feel in the room, you know, he's, there were a lot of people in the room, there were a lot of students, but there were also a lot of people from the Colorado oil and gas industry, and it definitely wasn't that Kennedy was saying things and the oil and gas people just felt like, oh, this is just obviously false. There was it, there, it kind of made sense as he was saying it. And I don't think that I think people were probably wondering, OK, how am I going to counter all of that? And I think to some extent, Kennedy was wondering how I was going to uh, counter all of that. So if you want to see how I counter it, you can, of course, view the debate and you can see it. It's unfortunately only available on Facebook right now, which I know some people don't like Facebook, but maybe you have kids or a spouse or something that has Facebook if you uh, if you don't. But let's see, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. And you can watch it at the, the link to the Facebook is at fossilfueldebate.com. So, but just to give you a little bit of how I was thinking about it in advance, one thing I thought was really important for all of these things is to, well, it, you put maybe in two categories. So one is what we could call the, the category of looking at the big picture. So that I wanted to make sure that I gave people facts that captured the overall trends of what are happening in the world, which namely fossil fuels are driving an unprecedented and ever improving standard of life for ever more people, um, including an ever more livable climate. So I wanted that to be clear that in the aggregate, this is happening and thus all of these specific things are are likely distortions that he's saying. And the other thing was I wanted to give some historical context for the seeming uh, expert nature of what he's saying. And so uh, with both the points about uh, the benefits of fossil fuels, which he's denying there are any any unique benefits, and but also the, the side effects, particularly climate catastrophe, I made very early on the point that there's a, tra there's a track record of people claiming that fossil fuels are easily replaceable and it hasn't happened. And there's definitely a track record of people claiming that fossil fuels are causing imminent climate catastrophe or other environmental catastrophe. And that definitely hasn't happened. I think it's really important for people to have that context because otherwise it just seems like, well, there are all these smart people and they're saying something and it must be cutting edge and they must be certain who am I to judge. But if you see it as, oh, wait, this is a category of thing that alleged experts have been saying and been wrong about for many decades, then it it really calls into question, are they, is their thinking accurate? And then that opens up to the possibility that, well, they're not looking at the big picture and they're not looking at the at, at the different elements of the big picture precisely. And that's a lot of what I um, focused on. So one thing which we'll, we'll discuss probably in a lot of depth is the one thing I didn't expect so is a fifth expectation I had, but I didn't have it to the extent that it happened which was that he would try to downplay his advocacy of coercion to deal with fossil fuels. This is something people almost always do. They, Even if they advocate massive coercion, and the whole title was, should we radically restrict fossil fuel use uh, to prevent climate change? But people, like they don't like to admit that they really want to use guns to prohibit people from making choices they want to make. So I expected him to backpedal on this somewhat, but he his basic position was, I never saw the debate title until last night or today, I forget which one it was, and to really position himself as, no, I'm a total advocate of free markets and and capitalism, and actually Alex uh, isn't. And sort of the core the core things there, which we can discuss in more depth there, one is that um, solar and wind are excluded, are, are punished, relatively speaking, in the market because the uh, so-called externalities of fossil fuels aren't priced in. So actually, fossil fuels are much more expensive than we think they are, and those need to be priced in, and then we'll have a real market. And then the other thing he said was that that um, by other means, solar and wind were being excluded from the market. And he, he didn't give many examples, but he talked about like, his own house and how he's being pre prevented from offering uh, electricity to the grid, and that if only we removed, so if only we removed that obstacle to solar and wind, if only we gave them a chance, and if only we stopped um, ignoring the true cost of fossil fuels, which is massive, then we would have universal green energy in short order. And at, at certain points, he even said 
it will be like free for everybody uh, forever. So it's just a pretty strong uh, statement. So we'll we'll talk about that. But I I expected him to to evade the coercive nature of his position, but I did not expect him to come out as a champion of free market capitalism. And so there are things I I, I wish I said there. So that was my. But overall, it was it was good. I was happy with my ability to frame the discussion. I was happy with my ability to engage him on a lot of the specific points and give my, I think, uh, my looking at the full context or the big picture on those points. And I think I was able to really emphasize the themes of low-cost, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing, including a quality environment, that the fossil fuel industry is uniquely good at producing low-cost, reliable energy, and that the side effects are um, of fossil fuels have been wildly exaggerated and uh, distorted and are actually uh, more than manageable if we have low-cost, reliable energy. And then the other point was just that it's it's essential, it's indispensable to the standard of living and to the ability to flourish that billions of people have, but that billions more aspire to. So it's not just we want to it's not just we want to preserve uh, the current thing; it's we want to expand for ourselves. But also, there are billions more people who want a modern life, or at least many of them want a modern life, and they certainly should not be. Uh, we shouldn't have any restrictions that prevent that. So that was my overall take. I'll start with Don. Don, just what were your favorite parts of the event? Um, well, I'll name three. And the first thing is I just thought your opening was very good in that you framed things. I mean, you had six really uh, powerful facts that are on fossilfueldebate.com, but in particular, just getting... Um, making sure that at the forefront of this debate was the value of energy and the difficulty of producing it versus the kind of taking energy for granted and claiming that solar and wind had surpassed fossil fuels, which was, you know, Robert's position. I thought that was just like, that really was the core thing in the debate. And if you hadn't done that and tried to debate um, climate on its own terms, then it would have been hopeless. But I mean, you're by by really getting people to focus on the value of energy, which I think for most of the people in the audience who weren't in the industry is something they don't do. It's at most kind of like a subset of how they think about climate. Um, I thought that was important and effective. And I just know how hard it is to do openings and debates. And I thought this one was well done. But in terms of the actual way the debate played out, there are two things. One sort of uh, almost trivial, and I'll be curious to hear your uh, commenting on it, because I've not talked to you about either your strategy for this or your reaction, and then one more substantive. But the first was you used your standard example several times, uh, your analogy of how we should think about our energy choices, about looking at the positives and the negatives, this analogy to how, how we would make choices about whether or not to use vaccines. And the point being that we wouldn't just say, well, vaccines have side effects, so we shouldn't use them. And I mean, you've used this example for years, but it was you know notable that um, Kennedy is famous as an anti-vaxxer, although he, de he denied being an anti-vaxxer and then went on, and this is what I thought was amusing, to explain how vaccines were suggesting that they did cause autism, which is a, you know, disreputable, discredited position. Uh, but I'm curious as to how much that was a, an aim of yours to set him up to make an anti, what many in the audience would see as an anti-science claim versus that's just, you find a clarifying point in its own right. Um, well, let me, let me, the, let me deal with that one first. Yeah. Um, so, well, I really, I really like that analogy and I find it very, very clarifying. And uh, I notice I did not mention him at all, although he he acted like it. I didn't mention him. I mentioned the general kind of of position because I wanna I wanna make clear that I have a like insofar as I generally agree with a mainstream consensus scientific position. I think that's important to say because it implies okay, I'm not I'm not just looking for the most counter opinion imaginable. It's like I'm actually trying to be uh, objective about it. Uh, but I, I, I wasn't, uh, so I, I wasn't planning on bringing it up myself, but then Guy Benson clearly wanted to bring it up uh, from the get-go. Guy Benson 
was the moderator and I was interested in that. The part of it that I found most amusing was that he challenged me to a debate about vaccines. <laughs> like, you know, I want to have a debate and no one will debate me, um, which I just found kind of funny because uh, like, I don't think it's a strong thing to do in a debate. Like, being in one debate and then focusing so adamantly on let's have another debate. And so I, I think at the time I just said something like, okay, I'm going to like, I, I'm not an expert on that. I'm an expert on this. And I'm going to explain here why you're wrong about this. So I want to debate you about this. So that was my strategy and, and thought about it. So what was your uh, other thing? Well, you indicated it. Um, but this, this idea of portraying himself as, being for the free market and he's not the only one who does this you'll often get people basically people who are you know on the so-called left they will often position themselves as free market but it's always in the context of the next step being well there's some externality or market failure that we have to correct if we're really going to be for the free market and you indicated and made some really powerful points but i think we should you know really underline them um, trying to concretize what it would mean to really apply his thinking and how it would be the complete opposite of a free market. Because if the idea is that the we have a free market only when the government prices all the negative externalities of fossil fuels, I mean, the wider principle is that it would be the government is going to go around and every decision that you make, the government is going to reward you for your positive externalities and make sure that you are you have to pay for your negative externalities. And in practice, that would be an actual dictatorship because as you indicated, that it would be who's going to decide what the you know negative externality of you know being an ugly person walking around is, uh, or of you know um, starting a business that puts somebody else out of business by producing a superior product. Well, do you have to charge that negative externality? So what it, what it really is is free reign for the government to decide uh, to, to interfere in the free market. Whereas what a real free market is, you made the point, is it's that you have your rights protected and everybody else has their rights protected. And yeah, you're going to have some un, uh, unreimbursed positive externalities and you're going to have some negative externalities that you don't have to pay for. But um, uh, and that is exactly what a free market is. And what I found, what, what, what was really disingenuous though, is how selective this idea of, well, I'm concerned about the externalities of fossil fuels, because notice, for example, that he did not mention or show any concern about, well, what about the negative externalities that aren't priced into solar and wind? So one of the audience members very eloquently talked about the rare earth mining practices and about how destructive those can be. And I didn't hear from Robert saying, well, no, we have to make sure that they have to pay, you know, for the full consequences of their actions. So it's it, it's really a, a complete falsehood of not wanting to be open about their authoritarian agenda and 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 so using this kind of concept of externalities um, which I think at most is helpful for thinking about certain economic things, but not for making policy decisions. And even there, I think it's at least a concept I'm suspicious of. Um, but at least if you really believed in it, you wouldn't be using it selectively. Yeah. Uh, one one example, well, since you've already gone into some depth, in it, let me say one more thing. Of that. So I, I mentioned that I think the, the externalities point is kind of is half of his pseudo free market uh position, which I, I do regard as, as actually totalitarian. So the other half is is allegedly that solar and wind uh, are being constrained and, and unfairly fenced out of the market, which we can talk about. But um, And I wish I had said more about that one because that was just totally false. But the externalities one, so I agree with, with everything you said, and, and it's really important that, yeah, it is, it is a, a dictatorial thing to give people arbitrary power to at any point decide oh, this thing should be many times more expensive. I mean, nobody could make any decisions ever uh, if if the government had that kind of arbitrary power. The example that I thought of afterward, which I don't think I used at the time, but I think is very, captures the actual nature of what's going on, including the point I made that, that people are ignoring the positive externalities, 
I think I did make the point about positive externalities in the internet, which is a powerful thing. That is, who's paying? Who is paying the coal industry for making possible the internet? Which they definitely did, in a substantial way. And and what are all the benefits from that? And why aren't we thanking them for that? But I just the example of I mentioned China and India, and how you have an increase by life expectancy for over seven year by over seven years for two and a half billion people, and that's even an understatement of what's been happening over the past forty or so years, and. Combined with Robert's admission that by his calculations, you know, gasoline today should cost twelve dollars a gallon. So you imagine those you know, that so that's basically the price should go up by a factor of four. So imagine what would have happened to China and India if the price of oil and the price of coal, um, to some extent the price of gas, although they're mostly using coal and oil. Imagine if those had quadrupled. Well, there would be no way that they could have afforded. Uh, to industrialize. It just would have been, they just don't have uh, the resources. So, so much of what's important about energy is that you'd be able to produce it at low cost. People have always been able to produce energy historically. I mean, you know, you could you could spend a lot of time and resources gathering wood and you can burn the wood. But what's unique about modern energy or distinctive about modern energy is that you're able to have processes that can create energy profitably create energy for a low cost. But if if energy is four times more expensive, then there wouldn't have been industrialization in these countries and you wouldn't have uh, anywhere near the increase in life expectancy and certainly not income that happened. And what's the destruction of that? I mean, how many trillions or what? I mean, you can't even really quantify it. It's it's people's so essential to people's lives. So there's something what the point is, there's something really off with a kind of methodology where billions of people would not have been allowed to industrialize and extend their lives dramatically and improve their quality of life uh, dramatically. But his view is, yeah, 40 years ago, you know, we knew about these externalities, so it should have been really expensive then. I think that reveals that he's, we're talking about the same kind of prohibition and, and uh, destruction now, but it's, it's destruction of what could be. And now we've, we've seen now what could have been, what, you know, what could have been 40 years ago because it was mostly free to happen. But I think it's, it's a stark example of yeah, there's something really off if you're saying that fossil fuels should be four times more expensive. Stefan, what were your highlights from the debate? Uh, so this was not exactly a, a sort of hit and answer by the two of you, but I liked how you pointed out that fossil fuels are actually the faster growing uh, energy sources. And so you correctly countered that, you know, he was using capacity instead of actual energy unit consumption, um, a sort of a bad type of accounting. And you explained that very well. So one level deeper, we had a fairly recent power hour where we actually showed that in actual consumption numbers, that fossil fuels uh, last year grew faster than solar and wind, and each of them grew faster than uh, solar and wind combined, actually. So that that was really one of the big things, because we are constantly hearing, and this is what gives the solar and wind advocates a bit of momentum. They are not like open to new technologies. They are insisting on solar and wind, so the worst performing, as you often say. Um, and so this is, it's important to realize, as I often say on power, the order of magnitude of the challenge. And solar and wind are really not up to that. And so the actual uh, growth numbers show that uh, fossil fuels are actually growing faster uh, than solar and wind. And solar and wind are not even catching up in the global consumption. So I think that was a really good destruction of uh, Robert's uh, disingenuous note that like, oh, wind and solar are growing with, you know, big capacity additions uh, in comparison to the other energy sources. So what I want to make one, so, I want to make one note about that one. So it was, it was very important to me that when there was the opportunity, I made very clear that he was representing the facts in a very sloppy and biased way. And so I did, I would keep going back to the refrain of people are ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels and they're wildly exaggerating and distorting side effects. And so that was, I think it was important from the get go that I said 
like, look, this is being distorted. And I, I forget exactly what I said, but I was pretty hard on him uh, about it. He never really answered it. He tried to answer me by picking out something else, which isn't what I directly criticized. But I think one of the goals in a debate is to is to make clear what one's methodology is and then expose how the opponent is violating the methodology. Because if you can, it's, it's much easier to show people live can validate to some extent methodology. They can see, yeah, is this person really looking at the full context versus this person isn't? This person is being precise versus this person is being sloppy. You can tell those things more readily than you can validate some claim to fact, although I wanted to help people validate claims to fact. That's why I had the website uh, there. So yeah, it was, I think it was really important to just repeatedly say, yes, this person is distorting the facts for this narrative, and that's that's not okay. Okay, what, what were your other ones, Stefan? Uh, so uh, one was the, uh, another one was the um, insistence by Robert Kennedy to, to sort of pseudo use the levelized cost of energy and that was um as you pointed out like their empirical there's empirical evidence like if germany and denmark see the energy prices escalate the more wind and solar they use there's something off with the notion that oh they are already so cheap they are beating everything in the marketplace and uh yeah so that that was a really important thing and uh i mean there's no, plenty of evidence that this is the case, that wind and solar are making energy more expensive and that this is systematic and why that is. Uh, even though the quantification thing is always difficult and uh, proponents of solar of wind often use that as a, sort of an excuse or evasion uh, method to say, oh yeah, no, it's the commodity prices go up or some other factor or some taxes or something. But we have plenty of evidence and plenty of examples where we can exactly show, hey, this is a new policy. This is forced on the market. This is not a capitalist free market where people have choices. It's government policy and it's actually increasing dramatically uh, the energy cost for consumers. And it's I think it's it's quite important to simply not accept someone like Robert Kelly who just says, hey, it's levelized cost, as if you would know what that entails, and then insist on, hey, it's a capital and it's a maintenance and so on. So this is as if this was a full life cycle cost, which is it is clearly not because solar and wind, of course, have integration costs. They are intermittent power sources. And, you know, to have them sell a different product, unreliable power, compared to a coal power plant or a nuclear power plant, is uh, that's a different product that's, that imposes additional cost on the total system. And this is clear now in the literature, uh, in the uh, sort of academic literature, that's clear from the empirical evidence around the globe. Wherever more solar and wind is used, the energy prices go up. And uh, so it's not, so you can't just go around in a debate and say, hey, uh, we theoretically, someone theoretically calculated that the levelized cost of energy uh, are lower for wind and solar. And so that's the truth. And I, I think you uh, explained that well and, and held back against that very well. So that's, that's that was really good in my view. Great. Um, okay, let's see which ones, what, so I know you guys had some stuff you want to talk about. Let's let's since we were just talking about levelized cost of energy, I want to talk about the other half of Robert's false claim to be a free marketer. So the, the main thing is that he wants dictatorial power via externalities calculated by him or whomever he feels like. And I, I mentioned that I mean, these calculations are just arbitrary, and they can be. I mentioned with the International Monetary Fund, it increased by something like two billion, two trillion dollars in a year. So just be like, oh yeah, well this year the experts at the International Monetary Fund decided that you know, oh gasoline should go up by five dollars a gallon. Uh, we will alert you next year what they decide. I mean, you just think about what kind of destruction that is just by the unpredictability of it, let alone just the massive cost increase in everything that depends on oil, which is pretty much everything. So, but the other half was this idea that solar and wind are being held out of the market. And I addressed this a little bit at the end with this issue of net metering. I wish I had said more about it early, but it's it's such a bizarre idea 
because, in fact, what what has created all sorts of problems in grids around the world is that in one form or another, solar and wind are mandated. So you are forced to, like, if there's solar and wind available, you are forced to use it. And so what that means is that you are always having these highly variable demands on your reliable fuel. So if, if you're forced to use solar and wind first, uh, you know, depending on how many clouds there are and how much wind there is and what time of day it is, um, but, you know, what time of day is a little more predictable, but like clouds and, and, and wind, you know, you're going to have to dramatically cycle up and down your um, your gas plant, or it's even worse if you have to try it with a nuclear plant or a coal plant. And what, what happens is these you're having things that just have to go online and offline and up and down, and it becomes really inefficient from an energy use perspective and therefore from an economic perspective, also from a pollution perspective. Uh, just starting up one of the plants, certainly like a coal plant, that is, that can emit a large percentage of the pollution that's emitted. Uh, just because when, once something is up and running, it runs much more efficiently and and cleanly. So what's actually happening is we are forced to take solar and wind, even though it's not in our interest. And specifically with home users, there's this issue of what they call uh, net metering, which basically means, and, and I, I mentioned this briefly, and he tried to deny it, but it basically means that you, if you are a home electricity producer, so to speak, with solar panels, the idea is that you get paid the full retail rate. So like the consu- the rate the consumer pays, uh, which is much higher than what's called the wholesale rate, which is the, the price that generators get paid. You know, you get paid that rate for any electricity you generate at any time, regardless of whether people want it or it's an inconvenience. And as I mentioned before, it's it's often a big inconvenience because sometimes you have too much of it. Uh, you have more of it than would be efficient to use. So it's just the opposite of the truth that solar and wind are being excluded. They're being mandatorily uh, included. So I wish I had made that point just to capture this. He's not in favor of free market. He's, in fact, the the mandated unfree market he's uh, dissatisfied with and complaining about despite all of these advantages. The other thing that I wish I had said about this issue, I said it a little bit, but I focused a lot on how cost goes up because you have um, the combination of you have to pay for the unreliable fuel infrastructure and the reliable fuel infrastructure because the unreliable fuel infrastructure needs almost 100% backup from a reliable fuel infrastructure. So it always adds cost. So that was a point I was happy that I made that explains why the prices go up. But I didn't stress enough that the more you're trying to use these unreliable fuels, the worse they scale. So it's one thing to say, yeah, if you use 5% of them on your electricity grid, then it drives up your prices a lot and that's bad and that hurts people. And that's really important. But the other point, especially when he's talking about 100% of these things, is they don't scale at all in terms of providing anywhere near 100% of the energy. And in fact, the, the more of them you have, the more problems you have because you're just having these huge spikes of power and then these huge dips. And then if you're saying you're not allowed to use fossil fuel or nuclear backup, then like, what are you going to do? And then I mean, there's just no, we've talked about it before, but just the batteries are just uh, orders of magnitude, so hundreds of times away from the prices that need they need to be, and even that's they're made using fossil fuels, including the the materials are mined using fossil fuels, and a lot of the manufacturing is with fossil fuels, and the mining point in particular, and then the transportation of these materials points to a point I made a lot at the beginning, but I wish I had stressed more, which is just that particularly for um, heavy duty transportation, there's just nothing that is at all close to um, to oil, and what's closer to oil would be gas or even coal. But it's just that there's no, I mean, what the hell is it in terms of like solar and planes and, and in terms of tractors and harvesters? And so there's just, there's just a complete delusion that these are free market successes. I mean, there's no even real hypothetical with them. So to act like, yeah, we're going to get off fossil fuels on the timetable I'm talking about, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, if we just have this free market, like that's nonsense. And that's why, and, and this is the other point about coercion, which I made a little bit, but I wish I'd stressed even more, is that he has publicly endorsed these acts of mass coercion, like Green New Deal, or calls for mass coercion, like Extinction Rebellion. So 
in practice, there's nothing at all that he's advocating that would lead to anything like the solar and wind dominance uh, that he is claiming. And in fact, a free market would likely lead to dramatically lower amounts of those. Anything you guys want to add to that before we go to the next topic? Well, one thing I will add is, you know, he's making points about nuclear being non-economic, about solar and wind being uh, you know, superior on an economic basis. And one of the consequences of the of these policies that force um, us to use solar and wind and give that preference to energy coming from reliable sources is that it makes those sources more, far more costly, right? So that, I mean, many, one of the, if you're just thinking about from the perspective of you operating a nuclear plant, um, you know, you're designed so that you could run at a very steady level and a very efficient level and get paid on a regular basis for the energy you're supplying to the grid. But when you're forced to shuttle up and down and not getting paid what whenever the wind happens to be blowing and the sun happens to be shining, it becomes a... It, it, one of the things that we're doing is we're starving the sources of the fuels that we depend on for baseload energy of... Um, the reimbursements that they need in order to survive. They're not able to function the way that they were designed to function. And then you say, oh, look at how amazing solar and wind is. It's, yeah, if you have this political favoritism, then, you know, you can, no pun intended, outshine your competition, at least if we ignore the full costs uh, that you have. But, I mean, I think there's, like, it is a really terrifying um, thing to think about. Like, if you're, if we're putting out of business the the fuels that we need in order to have reliable energy uh you know that is a very troubling thing and as we've talked about in this podcast um i think it's part of what's contributing to uh an increasing threat of blackouts in this country one more thing on on this issue that i think came out in our research in advance and i think we need to do more of is just that it's really important to have to document all the specific stories about how green energy policies are deadly and destructive right now. And one element of this, we've talked a bit about the grid and the importance of the grid, but I think that it's easy to be too much all or nothing with the grid and say, okay, well, either there's a blackout or there's no problem versus what I'm noticing the more we do research on this is that you're having these what I call industrial blackouts. You're having like certain customers have their power cut off and that's incredibly destructive. And, and the utilities generally want to cut off the consumers last. So if you have a consumer blackout, then, I mean, that really means everything has degraded. But the fact that, that businesses can't rely on electricity on demand. And so you're talking, whatever you're talking about, you know, like an automaker or a pharmaceutical company, just think about how that, how that diminishes their ability to perform. I mean, even if, you know, as an individual, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm working out of a home office, but just if, you know, if the electricity could go off for 10 hours at a given time, it would really, really impact me. Now, for my part, because I use, you know, I'm not manufacturing the devices I'm using, I'm just using them and their energy requirements to use versus manufacture are fairly low. Yeah, I could get some batteries and I could, you know, I could cope with that. But if people are making steel, there's nothing like that at all. So you could just see that the, these things, these these industrial blackouts are already negatively impacting things. I think it's important for us to be able to show very, very concretely what's happening, to document it, to show the consequences on people, and then to be able to say, okay, this is this is a preview of what's to come, but there's already all this damage that you're not seeing versus the way they see it as, oh, let's celebrate you know, on Friday solar and wind produced X percentage of the energy. And it's going to be a distortion with for all sorts of reasons. Like they have all sorts of accounting tricks. But the point is what's actually happening is people's electricity is becoming more expensive and less reliable. And that's really bad for consumers. But uh, the thing you don't see is how bad it is for producers and what that means for the cost of different things that are produced here. And then in general, the ability to have a productive uh, economy here and, and the ability to be globally competitive. Okay, let's see. Um, so Don, I'm looking at your notes. It looks like you wanted to discuss climate related deaths, which uh, I'm happy to discuss more. So you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, so, I mean, Robert actually addressed or tried to address uh, this point that you make regularly and that I think is really crucial to thinking about climate generally, which is that what we're interested in is not is climate changing and are or even are we impacting it, but are what is the inf how is climate livability going and that actually our climate has become much more livable as measured by the uh, dramatic decline in climate related deaths and Kennedy's point response first of all he didn't seem to get the basic point because he conceded that yes there's been this decline but he said that's not due to fossil fuels that's due to the fact that we have you know early warning and the ability to come in after a disaster and help and clean up and you know you're he, the it ignored the basic point that is if we're concerned with climate safety the primary thing is our ability to act in the face of climate not what is happening with the natural climate but then even more than that is he did he say that he read your book he said he read it last night as in okay well Sunday then night. it should have been it should have been at the forefront of his mind that like the kind of examples he gave are things that you had explained exactly how they're related to fossil fuels that is fossil fuels by liberating us from you know 90 percent of us having to farm it was responsible for a whole technological society a society of progressive knowledge that enabled us to have things like early warning systems and to have things like you know the ability to come in and help after a disaster has occurred let alone to make things like resilient buildings and um you know to avoid disasters through things like irrigation so i mean he, he was his I mean, his basic thing, I, I think his response basically amounted to something like, you know, unless you're literally like dumping oil on top of a storm to cure it, like you can't give fossil fuels credit for reducing climate related deaths. Um, and then he made this point. Well, let, let me, let me I, jump in on that one, too, because if he had read another thing with reading my books is one thing about storm warning, but it's just not true that all the deaths prevented her from storms. As I mentioned in the book, the biggest historical cause of climate-related death is drought. And so that's not, it's not that, oh, well, we moved everyone out of the drought area. It's that, yeah, well, we have much better, you know, we're much better able to irrigate areas so we can produce more and then we can have drought relief via modern transportation systems that are oil-based. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, so he, he claimed that he, he had some fantastic uh, answer to this. And then I think you're going to talk. About, so it's just that he did not, it's not true that that storm warning systems, it's it's A, not true, as you mentioned, that they, they're not related to fossil fuels. They're incredibly related to fossil fuels. But then B, it's not true that that's any kind of exhaustive or even majority cause of fewer um, climate related uh, deaths. I mean, among other things, you couldn't even move all the people if you didn't have modern transportation, even if you knew about it. It would just be like a, it would just be kind of an early death warning. Uh, unless you had <laughs> right. transportation. Uh, so what and, was, I assume you're going to talk about, uh, Stephanie, you want to say something? Yeah, sorry. By the way, this, uh, he made this point about, you know, correlation is not causation. <laughs> and this is coming from someone who does exactly the, the fallacy of correlation is causation with vaccines and autism. And uh, in the case of, um, you know, everything is, is, uh, is uh, getting worse in terms of weather, which is actually not true according to the data. But he or claims even that health impacts of fossil fuels. He, like, how many times did he give an example of, oh, this community was, you know, near coal mining thing, and then they had cancer? Like, it's all correlation without causation. Um, and so, I mean, he, yeah, I, I, I had that same reaction, Stefan. Okay, so I think Don, you're going to talk about the the climate related damages point. Yeah, I was just going to raise, I, he did raise a point that I think, you know, is uh, worth understanding. And I forget if you did comment on it in the debate. I yeah, know I we did. Were putting up, okay. Um, so maybe you don't have anything to add to it. But I thought that was a really important point about, um, the, you know, the, the fact that climate damages uh, have gone up, even if that were true, which it turns out that it's not, um, not if you look at it on a per capita uh, basis, you know, that that does not prove our inability to cope with climate. Yeah, I think, Stefan, you probably have something you want to say about just the, the specific studies on this issue and what the data show. 
Yeah, as you mentioned in in the debate, uh, so there's there's actual work on that by a fellow called uh, Roger Pico Jr., um, who's sort of an economist statistician who is interested in both sports and climate-related issues. And so he has a, a 2018 update on a previous paper, um, you know, putting in perspective uh, weather-related losses as a percentage of global GDP. Um, and so it shows from 1990 to 2018 actually a slightly a slight downward trend. So uh, the explanation, of course, is, yeah, losses in absolute terms globally will go up and they will always go up as long as the you know, population gets larger in numbers and also wealthier because we are putting more and more wealth, more houses, more assets in, you know, some region where sometimes there will be a flooding event or a storm or something like that. And so you would, in, even in a perfect, cli uh, perfectly stable climate, you would always expect this to go up in absolute terms. But if you put this, uh, if you normalize this by the growth in global GDP, you actually see a slight decline. And the interesting part is that even there you would expect naively that the even as a percentage of global GDP, the losses should go up because what happens is people tend to flock to more vulnerable spots as the population grows. So something like New York City or Sao Paulo, some you know population center at a, in a coastal area or in a, in a river delta will grow faster than the rural areas. So they will be more vulnerable. These spots are more vulnerable to flooding and big storms and so on. So you would naively expect that this actually still goes up, but it doesn't. And this is just a testimony to our ability to actually protect ourselves from bad weather events. And still, and you know, the statistics uh, Peel could put together start in 1990 so this is modern times we already have satellites and so on it's still goes slightly down. now this is this is somewhat vulnerable to you know the specific start and end here so but there's certainly no uh significant upward trend visible in this got it all right we got about five minutes left so i just want to make sure we can cover any factual things that you think are super important Stephen, i know you wanted to cover the nuclear issue so can you do that in in two minutes just a summary. Uh, yeah, so I want to talk about one specific thing uh, that Robert uh, mentioned that is the Price-Anderson Act, which is like a 1950s um, act that was meant to promote nuclear energy or the use of commercial nuclear energy. And so he claimed that uh, nuclear is actually uninsurable and they need this kind of law um, be, to be exempted from liability in case of a nuclear accident because it's uninsurable and nobody will pay you when you're damaged by such an event. So and what the Price-Anderson Act actually does and more modern regulations also do in international agreements do is they guarantee that you will definitely be compensated when you're damaged from a nuclear facility because what the Price-Anderson Act does is it gives strict liability to the operator of that power plant or of that facility, and you don't have to go through a hassle of a lengthy court proceeding over 10 years to get your compensation. It actually says he cannot, the operator of that facility cannot deflect saying something like, oh, it was a supplier's fault, you have to go to him to get compensation. And it also guarantees by implementing, and this is a very questionable part that I, I don't like, but it implements the government as an insurer of last resort. So over, I think the threshold is now for single uh, accident, 12.6 billion US dollars. The government will go in and, you know, make up the rest, whatever the cost. Like if it's 100 trillion, it will be liable for 100 trillion. So you will get much, you're, you're much better insured at this point in time in the United States uh, if you get damaged by a, by a nuclear facility. And the reason why in all these contracts, in insurance contracts, <clears throat> there's a passage saying you are not, uh, we are not going to pay for uh, nuclear accidents is that the nuclear accident is specifically regulated to be operator liability no matter what. So the insurance company will never, your insurance company will never pay you, but the operator will always have to pay you. So that it's actually extra protection and, uh, you know, made sure that this is uh, this thing is covered. So there's, there are many more questions about how to actually do it. I don't think it's uh, terribly uh, expensive if you pool the risk. It's not like um, 
you know, this will increase the kilowatt hour price dramatically. And uh, specifically in the case of something like Fukushima, the question arises like a force majeure event, like a big tsunami, you know, killing tw almost 20,000 people in Japan. Is this really a nuclear accident if the power plant gets wiped out as well? So that's, this is something that no insurance would uh, insure uh, in other industry either. So good, uh, good points. Thanks for bringing those up. Any other factual issues any of you want to address in our final minutes? Okay, good. Well, so I think it was a it was a success. I'm definitely eager to do more of these things. I'm working on Moral Case 2.0 and finishing that up this year. And and even that was working on that has certainly been helpful for debating. But I think there's I've gotten a lot of good response to this debate, and uh, I've talked about some of the things I think I could have done better. I think there, there's, I'm seeing lots and lots of opportunity to do this well, and I think that there's vindication, though, uh, of the general approach that we've been taking in terms of how we frame things and how we explain things. So I think that there's, there's a lot of upside in continuing to do this, and it will be a matter of finding good venues slash sponsors to put these on and then seeing if we can get other interesting opponents. So I should say thank you to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think you're very wrong about energy, and I hope I hope you change your thinking on it. That would be a good thing. But uh, you did have the courage to go up on the stage and debate, and that's not an easy thing. And uh, yeah, I don't. I think at this point, people realize that if if they're going to be debating me on these things, it's not going to be an easy thing. So I appreciate people who have are willing to do it for whatever reason. And I hope that there are more willing to do it or even better yet. I hope that some of them refuse and then admit that they admit that I'm right and then become converts. That would be the ultimate debate, winning the debate before the debate. But I think it's going to be a while before that happens. So yeah, looking for good, prominent people to debate and good venues to debate them in. And hopefully we'll have, uh, I expect to have more of those in the coming year. All right. Thanks, guys, for the help preparing, and thanks for the help on this. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, or any speaking inquiries or consulting requests, uh, Don is our contact person at Power Hour, so you can just email him at don at industrialprogress.net, and he will help you out. If you're not on our email list already, make sure to get on it, alexepsteinlist.com, and you will get all of our resources and updates. Okay. That's it for this week. We'll probably be doing some more replays in the coming weeks, but I hope you enjoyed the new episode. Uh, until the next new episode, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.